Hello, and welcome to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver, live from the revolution in Houston. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. Look, mandatory disclaimer right off the top. We are recording this at midnight central time, 1 a.m. East Coast time. We cannot be held accountable for anything that we say over the next 60 to 90 minutes, however long you let this thing go. We just finished watching uh, Houston's dramatic Game 5 victory over Golden State. We were debating whether or not to do the pod before the game or after the game. I think we made the right call, Andrew, because that was one of the wackiest games I've seen in person in my entire life. We had the inadvertent whistle. We had the crazy Chris Paul threes. We had Draymond Green fumbling the ball away. We had Quinn Cook trying to have his, you know, John Paxson or uh, Steve Kerr moment coming up short. We had another kind of weird uh, push and pull game between Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. We had James Harden tying an NBA playoff record by going 0 for 11 on three-pointers and somehow the biggest story out of the game is probably going to be Chris Paul's injury. I mean, 10 of those things could have been headlining stories uh, that I mentioned, and here we are. So you you have some distance from this game. You know, I'm here right in the thick of Clutch City, you know, surrounded by Travis Scott and thousands of adoring open floor listeners. So I'm going to need you to provide some perspective here on, on what we just saw. Well, I have a couple thoughts in response. First of all, I appreciate the disclaimer at the top because I've been finishing a story for next week's magazine for the last like six or seven hours and then watch the game and uh, I can't promise any sort of coherence at this hour. Uh, And also, I'm really glad that you were there and locked into everything and were just as baffled as I was by those final couple minutes because yeah... The Draymond play at the end, but there was also, like, the Draymond clutch three to make it close down the stretch, and the Quinn Cook stuff, and Harden pulling his bullshit in the final minute or two. Like, the fact that he's still out there begging for fouls is kind of amazing. But I think, big picture, I am baffled that we are even having this conversation, and I am blown away by how impressive the Rockets are have been in the past like four or five days. I just never in a million years would have thought that they had this in them. Well, look, I actually thought you were going to try to find some way to shade the Rockets after all this. I expected you to come. I expected you to come on here and say, you know, if Brad Stevens coached the Warriors, this series would already be over 4-1. I thought you were going to say that because of Golden State's late game meltdowns. They just needed a, <laughs> a Brad Stevens ATO magic there, didn't they? And what do they come up with empty you know, in back-to-back games, uh, you know, in terms of Houston side of things, you know, we mentioned on the last podcast, at least I did, it was referendum time basically for Harden, for Harden's version of the Rockets. How do they respond in sort of a crisis moment? Yeah. Losing 41 points. Now, obviously Harden is in basically the worst shooting slump probably of his career, missing like 20-something straight three-pointers, but their level of energy and effort defensively in the last two games and just their stick to uh, resolve, whatever you want to call it. And I think Chris Paul deserves a lot of credit for that, um, both in game four, where I thought he was just sensational, but also in game five. Uh, you know, he, he had some really insane shots from deep and double clutch and hands in his face and all of that. But just the steadiness factor that he's brought to them, 
uh, has made a world of difference. I mean, this is not the 2017 or the 2016 or the 2015 Rockets. This is a, a, a different group. There's no question about it. And um, they deserve the credit for that. I mean, their home crowd, again, you know, to underscore that point I made earlier in the series. I mean, it was sensational, uh, you know, for the third time, basically. And uh, I think that's why Golden State here is kind of finding themselves doing what we're doing, which is their heads are spinning a little bit. And, and I think you saw it in Steve Kerr's postgame podium where he finally came out not smug for the first time probably all season. You know, uh-huh. like he's always kind of got that smirk to his game. And, you know, he was trying to, you know, pitch the optimistic stuff of like, our team's angry, but we know we've done enough that we can win this series. And like really trying to kind of, you know, lean and cajole and send messages to his team through the media a little bit about staying optimistic and upbeat. And that's something that we just have not seen from him really, like I said, all season long. And we didn't, we never had to see it during last uh, year's postseason because they were so dominant. So uh, I think reality has hit them pretty good here. Uh, I think it hit Steph Curry after game four where he says, okay, now this is a true playoff uh, experience. And I think it hit the Warriors collectively in game five. Their back's against the wall and, you know, we'll see how they, uh, how they handle it. Yeah, I think we've, we, we've got a lot to talk about with the Warriors side of this. But before we do, I think we should probably read this this Rockets hate email <laughs> that I got this week. Uh, there's been a lot of Rockets hate on the pod over the course of the year, and I'll take full responsibility. So Sam says, Dear Mr. Sharp, you have picked against the Rockets and James Harden whenever you've had the chance. You've argued that Harden's MVP odds were way too high, that he and Paul would not mesh, that they'd underperform Vegas's prediction of a two-seed, that they had lost the race for the one seed in December, that they were overperforming in January, that ISO ball would fail in the playoffs, that they could not adapt in the playoffs, that they'd lose to the Warriors in four, and that they'd lose to the Warriors in five a game later after they won. Mm. (laughs) I hope Mr. Golliver will remember any anti-Rockets predictions that I've forgotten. I feel like you once said Capella was a brain-dead person's March and Gortat, but I can't find the quote. I don't think I ever said that for the record. I don't remember all of those, but Sam continues. He says, anyway, you've been wrong every single time. I don't know if you started gnawing away at the Rockets when John Wall was whining about Harden's Adidas deal, or <laughs> if you resent the fact that the Rockets recovered from their awful 2015-2016 season while the Wizards keep running their dysfunction back. Maybe it's not Wizards-related at all. Maybe a man with a beard was mean to you once, and this is your revenge. I don't know. What I want from you, and what I think might be what you need, is an admission. Shed your hedgehog nature. I call you a hedgehog both because you hedge a lot and because I imagine you with big bucked teeth, a a pointed face, (laughs) and spiky hair. Anyway, please say unequivocally that you have no idea what you're talking about with regards to the Houston Rockets. So, yes. Well, you, he, he forgot one. I mean, that list was completely <laughs> thorough, but I had my own list over here. He checked all the major ones, but he forgot that you said the bag, baggage handler at IAH Airport who told everybody Rockets in five after game two uh-huh. was the only Rockets fan <laughs> in the world. 
<laughs> so you're gonna have to take that one back too, Andrew. I mean, look, this this email from Sam got a little personal. I, I mean, it was funny, and he was completely right on all facts. But um, <laughs> I don't know about the buck teeth or the pointy face. I think I, you, you know what? Know, Listen, that's uncalled for. I I am the greased pig, but I do like the hedgehog <laughs> nickname, and I good. I think. I'm going to give that to you going forward because you are Mr. Hedge on the podcast. I'm wow. the one coming out with hotter takes, and you are always playing Get it safe. Get out of here. I think Look, you're the hedgehog. We've, we've gotten dozens of people calling you out for hedging in the emails. <laughs> Look, I just bring nice, rational thoughts. You know, I, I don't have to go crazy. Uh, it is pretty funny, though, that in this hedge conversation, if Houston does win this series, and uh, I'll say right now, I actually think Golden State's still going to win the series, but if Houston does win this series, you're going to try to come on after all of the things that Sam has said <laughs> and, and tell us how you picked Houston to win the championship. I sure did. I sure in, did. In Listen. the open floor bracket. And that's the most, you know, sorry, Elizabeth, that's the most BS thing uh, that could possibly go. So I want to get out in front of that. You are not allowed to do that because you picked both teams in, in multiple places. But Listen, let's hold focus. on. I have okay. a couple responses to this email, Okay. So, first of all, I do want to say sincere shout-out to Sam and any other Rockets fan who has hung in there over the course of the season with me, because I'm sure it isn't easy. Like, I think the best part of my Rockets hate is that I'm never even actively engaging with that team. It's more like... Yeah, you haven't watched them all year. You got called out by D'Antoni <laughs> after game one. And well, and I'll be on the pod and I'll throw out these like parenthetical asides where you'll be talking about them and I'll say, ah, the Rockets are doing great, but honestly, who gives a shit? We don't need to take this team seriously. And I'm sure that that's really annoying when you're watching your team win 65 games and Harden win an MVP well, and everybody do you know what it's really annoying Andrew what when you're forced to do three hours of podcast with a guy every <laughs> single week all season long and this is what you get back I mean yes these guys have been a legit team since uh you know October or really before that as soon as they got Chris Paul and I've been over here having to carry the conversations for six months so you're going to apologize to Sam well, I've wait, never wait, insulted. Wait. I've never insulted your beard fear. I've never <laughs> insulted your buck teeth. Can I get an apology here? I'll just explain one thing. All of my Rockets hate started on NBA After Dark, a podcast I hosted at Grantland with Juliet Littman and Chris Ryan. And I don't know how many of our listeners ever actually listened to that. But my continued Rockets hate is a tribute to my friendship with Juliet and Chris. And... I don't apologize for any of this because all of the questions about the Rockets were completely val valid and they have answered them, which is awesome. I mean, I am completely blown away. Harden is still a little shaky, though. Can we admit that? I mean, yeah, he's shaky because he's only up 3-2. They haven't put him away yet. I mean... <laughs> no, no, look, I can't even. Look, I, I thought Harden was fantastic in game four. I mean, it. It was kind of a strange game because, again, he's not he didn't really do it in the classic way. Like You would yeah. think a player who scores as often as he does and gets as many shots as he does and has such a big usage rate, he, you would think he's the guy who's going to make every single play in the fourth quarter win it. And I think what his point after game four was, and maybe it went uh, a little bit under the radar, but he's like, I don't care how many points I have as long as we get the win and a guy like Eric Gordon or, or Trevor Reese step up and hit really big shots for them late in games, he was okay with that. To be honest, Andrew, even until a week ago, and you know I've come on here and defended James Harden from a lot of criticism over the last few years, uh, most of it from you, but also from our listeners, uh, I didn't ever 
know that he was going to be able to say those words that I would actually believe him, that he didn't mm-hmm. care <laughs> that those other guys took the shots or he didn't care how many points he had because that's how he's wired. And uh, I thought he was fine in game four. I mean, obviously it was a big dud in game five and he got bailed out by his teammates, but they played excellent defense and he was on the court for a lot of the time. They were playing strong defense. Yeah. He wasn't, he wasn't getting murdered on that end like he has in the past. And, you know, from that standpoint, I, I still don't think you can kind of, you know, uh, shade him here. I, I think mean, I think he's, I, he's yes. doing his job in this series. I will drop the bit here for for a second, okay? Harden has done a really nice job defensively, particularly in Game Four. He had a couple sequences where he was matched up on Steph, and I was looking at it expecting him to get embarrassed, and he really held his own and kind of locked in. And so I think if you're Houston, you take that trade off because they have other guys who can hit shots but they really need Harden to kind of not be the weak link that gets exposed defensively. And he's been he's been hanging in there, which is really impressive. I mean, game five was kind of a disaster offensively for him. Five of 21, 0 of 11 from three. But, uh, but look, the entire team is just super impressive right now. And these games, to me, feel like the 2016 finals. Like Golden State is weirdly discombobulated. The offense is sloppy as hell. Maybe Iguodala is that important, but I don't know. And I think Houston deserves a lot of credit for basically dictating the terms of these games. Yeah, I mean, Iguodala is that important. I mean, for a team whose motto is strength in numbers, they sure don't have the numbers, Andrew. I mean, mm-hmm. where where's their bench? I think their bench got outscored something like 33-4 to four in Game 5. I mean, that is heinous. Dude. It's, it's awful. It's That's my number one takeaway from this series. Like, We got a question from Kotz who said, what do you make of the Warriors' number of centers on their roster? Why did <laughs> yeah. Zaza get so many more minutes in the regular season, et cetera, et cetera? I, like, I just don't understand how anyone thought it was a good idea to build the team this way. And I, it's, you know, I mean, they miss Patrick McCaw, but like that, that's not an excuse. This is This is rough. They were legitimately counting on Quinn Cook and the Quinn Cook shot like it was a good look for him he was wide open and he's a like dead-eye three-point shooter so they it wasn't I'm not clowning him for that but when Quinn Cook is your most reliable fifth option like there are bigger questions to be asked yeah well let's do the both sides on this thing about the centers because I think it's a pretty interesting discussion so uh, the critic side would say, why do you have six centers? Obvious question. Very valid question. Steve Kerr's defense has been, look, uh, we didn't expect Pat McCaw to get injured. Uh, we didn't expect Steph to get injured late in the season so that they needed to, to sign Quinn Cook and had to dump Omri Caspi. They didn't expect Omri Caspi and Nick Young to both sort of you know be basically unplayable sort of in, in the key moments. Yeah. Uh, they drafted Jordan Bell, and basically he was a steal, so they needed to keep him around. Uh, they hoped that you know Looney would continue to sort of give them minutes in certain matchups, and obviously he's been uh, playing some really important minutes and starting for them here in this Western Conference Finals after Iguodala got injured. So that is a run of bad luck. But I think your criticism that you just laid out is absolutely valid, Andrew. Six centers when you're coming in uh, to <laughs> the season. Look, who was their their biggest threat this year coming into the season? It was Houston, right? Yep. I mean, couldn't we agree? 
Their biggest threat was Houston. You don't need to have all those extra centers against Cleveland. You didn't have to have them really last year in the finals this all that much. This is the team that invented small ball, for God's sakes. Come on. Yeah, and I think their two best centers, to be honest, are Draymond and KD in this Still, matchup, yeah, right? Yeah, no question. Yeah, and so you have all these other guys who are just taking up rotation spots. And, you know, Kerr's counter to that was like, well, how good would those wings have to be? Uh, to be able to get into the series. And, and I think that's, that's a fair. fair point because they did have to pay, you know, Nick Young, you know, a pretty, you know, meaningful amount of money to to get him in free agency. But still, if you're a destination like the Warriors, everybody is fighting to play for the Warriors and you can't find a better option on the wing than that. Um, I think it's tricky. So, uh, you know, if you look add up the stats of like Golden State's four all-stars and then everybody else, like the discrepancy there is just crazy. And mm-hmm. I was sitting there during game five and honestly thinking like, wow, Golden State's four all-stars need more help. What world are we in? <laughs> what kind of weird <laughs> alternate universe are we in where four Hall of Famers isn't enough to, to get you through uh, to the finals? But that's how good Houston's been and how steady they've been. And uh, I think you know, that's, that's why... the right way to describe it because that is really what we've been watching with the Rockets is they're not they're – not like blowing the Warriors off the court at any point really, but they never fade too much. You know, they never disappear. And uh, I mean, they, they missed a lot of open shots in the first half tonight. So they, they definitely could have blown Golden State off the court had some of those shots fallen. But in that second half, I personally (laughs) King rocket skeptic here. I expected the Warriors to kind of take control of the game. And there were a couple times when Golden State took the lead and there was always an answer. And that's the way the past two games have been. Is they've, there's just nothing easy for the Warriors. And uh, I don't know. Like I, I, I'm kind of just shocked here. Well, that's another thing too, because Kerr comes out after the game and he's like, I actually thought our ball movement was better than it was in game four, like trying to spin how much progress they had made offensively. And I was sitting there thinking like, I mean, at least you had the third quarter stretch from Steph uh, in game four where the Warriors sort of looked like the Warriors. I didn't think in game five, no matter what they were trying to say, that their offense ever looked like it was on track. I mean, there was a few situations where they actually strung together two or three consecutive passes got themselves wide open looks. You know, at one point, Looney gets a dunk. At another point, I think they maybe got a, a wide open corner three for Clay Thompson, you know, d- different situations like that. But in terms of the steady flow that we associate with Golden State, to me, to my eye, it definitely was not there at all uh, in Game Five, and that's why I think, you know, for Kerr, uh, I think one of the big questions kind of coming out of the media bubble was, are they running too much through KD? Mm-hmm. Like, do they just need to like turn Steph loose a little bit more here? Uh, and I'm curious on on your thoughts. I I can guess which side of that debate <laughs> you're on, uh, but uh, you know, let's let's be serious here. Let's be intellectually honest. Like, yeah. How much KD has is too much uh, in these last couple of games? Well, the one thing that I think you can say for sure is that the they haven't figured out the right rhythm, you know? And you can see it even within some of these quarters. Curry will get hot, and then they pitch it to KD almost as an obligation because it just, like, they need to get him touches. And, I mean... Durant and and the whole broader conversation about him and his decision aside, like I do think that the Warriors are just like so much less dynamic when it's running through him in an ISO situation. 
and uh, and they just like there are there are four and five minute stretches where it's almost like watching the 2011 Heat. Like they're just taking turns, and there's no flow, and they almost look like they've got less chemistry this year than they did last year. And in in part because they're involving Durant more this season, I think, than they had than they did through last year's playoff run. But it's just really strange to watch because even you take away Iguodala, the, there are still four Hall of Famers on the floor, and it's I, they're just out of sync right now. Yeah, it's it's tricky because it keeps going back to the chicken and egg thing for me, which is like I don't think KD wants to be shooting as much as he is, mm-hmm. but it seems like they're just continually asking him, "Hey, like what? Else? We have nothing else going on. You go ahead and do it." And I think. It, this might be a situation where in game six, especially if Chris Paul is not 100% or if he doesn't play, like this is Steph Curry's time to be a little more selfish. You know yeah. what I mean? And I, I think it's kind of time for him to just say, you know what? I am a two-time MVP. Maybe I'm not 100% right. Uh, maybe Houston's done a pretty good job, you know, making my life more difficult. But at some level, if the options are, okay, pound KD again and see what happens or Steph Curry just, you know, get a little bit looser, uh, you know, with your shot selection and try to force the issue a little bit, draw fouls, you know, stretch Houston's defense and, and get the ball moving. You know, mm-hmm. to me, I would I would take that second option. But well, and I think that's no. a that's a really good point because I love Steph and will rep for him always, but he hasn't really been great except for that that second half in Game Three, and they're just. It's hard to defend some of these some of these possessions. I mean, like particularly in game 4, the offense was such a mess down the stretch and KD is an easy scapegoat, but like Steph deserves a lot of criticism for coming up empty in a lot of these situations because both game 4 and game 5 were very winnable and Curry just wasn't making the plays. And like even in the final minute, he had a shot at the rim that didn't fall and he's just not really executing so i understand if kd feels like he has to take on more of a burden because curry isn't getting it done either yeah exactly and that's why i think when people are pointing at like kd's ratio of shot attempts to assists, i mean first of all kd is not an elite passer by any stretch right but he's an okay passer and he can make simplistic reads so if the ball is moving like it should for golden state and you know that good to great shot KD can make that pass to go from a good shot to a great shot right but they're just never in the rhythm not only just KD but everybody else uh where they're able to kind of you know put him in those kinds of situations you know KD's just not going to dice a defense up with his pass and that's just not who he's ever really been as a player and I Mm -hmm. think that's part of the issue too is like if you dump the ball to him on offense waiting for a double or waiting for uh, a scramble situation or whatever his natural instinct is always going to be to shoot it, right? So if you want to put, if you want to get Katie in a situation where he can make, you know, good opportunities for his teammates, the you know dump down to the block and and let him go to work, that's not the way to do it, in my opinion. And so I, I don't know if that means involving him and, and Curry and more pick and rolls together. Uh, I don't know if that means, like I said earlier, just letting Curry do a little bit more uh, from himself. Uh, but to me, that a lot of guys are just not really fully engaged and in rhythm. You know, like Draymond, for example, passed up a lot of threes. In some of those situations, it's good that he did. He found a better uh, shooting opportunity for one of his teammates with the pass. But in some situations, you know, he's kind of stopping the offense with his uh, timidity. And then you look at Clay. I mean, 
game four to me was a real head scratcher from clay like just all the way around i mean passes are being thrown off of him he's not looking like he can't hit a shot uh, and then in game five again he was sort of wavering at times you know successful on offense but at other t- times not really and yeah this game was so weird andrew it felt like the game six in Oklahoma City where, you know, Golden State survived basically by the skin of their teeth with Clay Thompson just going absolutely nuts. Right. And that that's the kind of performance they needed from somebody. You know, someone just needed to take over, go nuts, and just sort of put their stamp on the game. And no one did it. I mean, KD had a lot of points, but he was never really the major force in that game. Steph definitely wasn't. Like you mentioned, he was quiet, especially late. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I did like when he attacked off the dribble going to the basket. I think he's going to be able to consistently find points that way because they're chasing him off the line. So he has to continue doing that. Uh, but, you know, the cuts are missing. Uh, the flow is missing. Uh, I thought Draymond was just kind of meh in both of the last two games. And, and I'm usually one of his biggest defenders. So... Uh, I think there's, you know, I guess the way you spin this, if you're if you're Kerr, and maybe this is the reason why he's optimistic, is like they were very close to winning both of the last two games, and they and they probably play, they, they probably played at like a D, yeah, you know, or or maybe a C minus if you want to be generous uh, in those two games. Well, yeah, and I I don't want to second guess the Warriors too much because I think it's still healthy to have all kinds of fear of what they're capable of, but. Uh, but there's room to second guess everybody right now. And the whole team, they're just so casual. And all Warriors losses look like this. But they're so casual with the ball in big moments. And it just is still bizarre to watch. No no less bizarre than it was in the 2016 finals. And that's the other question I had is, what was your reaction to that final play? running things through Draymond. Uh, I like. I just, I don't want to come out here and hate on Steve Kerr for 30 minutes, but I don't know what he was thinking. And it's not his first head scratching decision in a huge moment for this team. Let me say this very clearly. I think Steve Kerr is a great coach and a great person. If they wind up with two titles out of the last four years, that is worse than Miami only getting two out of their last yeah. four, the four years of LeBron by a long shot. I mean, that would be a serious disappointment. And I think you can harp on that Draymond play for sure. That was weird. It didn't really make sense. But also going back to game four, you know, no timeout. When that play bogs down, when Katie passes the clay, who's exactly. been off the entire game, yes. you have to call that timeout. There's no excuse for that. And Draymond was the only one who even seemed to try and you know kudos to his basketball IQ for doing that but uh, they needed a timeout in that situation and just the way the whole game had been going I think he just sort of overthought things uh, in that game four but your point on their complacency is dead on I mean we saw it in game four they're up 12-0 they immediately have a turnover Uh, you know Curry has a bad pass and Kerr goes out there to take the timeout like right off the top because he knew right then here we are screwing around with another game. You know, we get up 12-0. We think we're unstoppable. We think we're the Globetrotters. We're going to mess around. We're going to give up this cheap basket right off the top. Yeah. And he knew. He tried to take the time out at that point to sort of shake his team awake, and they couldn't do it. You see, you know, Steph with the shimmy in the third quarter. You know, to me, that's unnecessary. You know, like finish the game off, then celebrate uh, in game four. And, uh, you know, I, I just think 
he didn't have this team really mentally ready. And like I said, the feeling after game five uh-huh. from Kerr was like, holy cow, we're actually in it now. Like, <laughs> they're like clearly life, in it. Like, they, yeah, but, just but basically life, life came at them fast, Andrew. I guess that was my point, right? Yeah. Like they, and they tried to say, oh, we respect this team. They're a 65-win team. They're really good and, and all these other things. But they did not play – like they respected the Rockets for you know at least three, if not four, of the first five games of the series. Yeah, and when I say watch the games, what I mean is that the flow of the games favor Houston so dramatically that like I would have been panicking after Game Four if I were a Warriors fan. Um, and again, like you could chalk all this up to Iguodala, and maybe he comes back for Game Six and they dominate and they win in seven. Like that's still very much on the table it is probably still the most likely scenario on if we're being honest but uh but yeah the curse stuff like yeah but the- no no excuses though right andrew i mean we're saying this is a team that has steph curry and kevin durant two of the best three players in the world curry's healthy enough out there to play and and play large minutes yeah. they can't lose the title this year no right? look i mean that is a disaster <laughs> i have been a dyed in the wool warriors believer for the last four years and I don't really know how it happened, but I just fell in love with Steph at the very beginning. And uh, and they are great. And I believe in like every level of the organization. But there's just a lot of room to be skeptical after the past week. And I think it's kind of a wake-up call. And the Kerr decision in Game 4, like as soon as Durant gave that ball up, it was clear that the possession was going nowhere. And that's where you take the timeout. And then with Draymond... He's great as a creator, but he's not exactly like tight with his dribble, even in the best of circumstances. And like, (laughs) there's a lot of room for error with him, and that's always been there. And so that's why I wouldn't have given it to him, fifty feet from the backcourt. Like I just, the whole thing is really puzzling. And it's not like you even really want him to get fouled or anything else that could happen in that situation, right? Like, do you want Draymond taking your free throws in that situation if if something happens, you know? Or do you want him reading the defense? I mean, you have two MVPs for a reason. Just, it's nonsensical. And, um, you know, I I don't know how you explain that. Like, Kerr has explained some of the limitations that they faced here over the course of the series pretty well. I don't know if he's had any convincing answers for his decisions at the ends of games four and game five. And he has to take that one on the chin. And that doesn't mean we have to rush and say like fire Kerr. But uh, to me, like if they don't win the title this year, like what are you guys doing? You know, <laughs> how are you paying all these players? And, and you have these four uh, all-star level guys out there. Like it, the difference in this series shouldn't be an Iguodala injury or the fact that you can't play JaVale McGee, right? Like yeah. those are unfortunate but that should not derail a title team, you know, a team that has this much talent. Uh, I just don't see any excuses, and uh, I think it starts with Kurt. Can we talk about, we have two more things we need to hit from this series and that game. Number one, Chris fucking Paul, all right? We forgot to even mention him when we were talking earlier this week about Warriors Rockets, and you issued your challenge to James Harden. And he's kind of flunked the challenge. I don't know. We don't have to give no, him too much credit for the Andrew, defense. Andrew, come look, on. Just saying, all right? But look. He did not. He played a very good game. He, he was be... solid. He was solid. Not exactly MVP level basketball from oh. him. But look, 
Chris Look, I just Paul. hope those Rockets fans are still taking notes on these things that you're saying. Okay? <laughs> that was an exhaustive list from my man Sam, okay? And I, God knows I deserve it. But Chris Paul, we didn't even mention. And he was he struggled like pretty aggressively through those first three games. And then came back and was spectacular in game four. And quieted a lot of sort of brewing criticism with him and skepticism over his future. And then in the second half tonight, man, like I talk about Houston having a response every time it looked like Golden State was going to take advantage or take control of the game. And almost every time it was Chris Paul with the response, okay? And like I don't want to get too excited as a longtime CP3 stan because a we need to make sure he's healthy for the rest of this series and b if he actually finishes this series it would be one of my favorite basketball stories ever um i don't want to jinx anything but just strictly tonight and strictly that second half like he is just such a tough crazy bastard and i love him for it yeah i mean there's so many different things you can say about chris i mean first of all how many big shots did he hit in game four? I think between him and Gordon, I mean, these guys are just hitting like over and over big shot after big shot. But in game five, the thing that stood out to me, because his shooting numbers weren't that great. I mean, he hit the crazy threes we mentioned earlier, but what stood out to me, and I think we underrated this, Andrew, uh, coming into the series is when you're talking about their isolation style, there is a serious degree of mental fatigue that uh, takes place defensively when you have to go against these guys over and over and over again, right? And Chris Paul and James Harden have thousands of reps all season long in these situations. They've seen every defense. They know every counter. They love to play one-on-one. They're really good at it. Those situations are tiring for them, and we did discuss that, but we forgot to mention how tiring they are for those individual defenders who are out there on the island with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that they've basically just sort of worn Golden State's defenders in those situations down a little bit uh, because, I mean, think about how paranoid you would be in uh, in an island one-on-one with Chris Paul with all eyes on you. You're trying not to foul him. You know he knows every trick in the book. You're trying to contest on three-pointers. You don't want to give him the daylight because he can hit that shot. You know he can do a one-dribble pull-up. You know he can get all the way to the basket. You know he can go either direction. Uh, I mean, those are a lot of decisions that you know Golden State's defenders have had to make. And I thought Golden State overall played really solid defensively, but the margin here, uh, you know, given the way the last two games have played out is very narrow. I mean, you can play uh, an A minus game defensively and have that not be enough. And I think that's sort of what happened to, to Golden State in game five. But looking ahead for Chris Paul, the way that he he clutched that hamstring really had me nervous because he knew it immediately. He's dealt with that hamstring yeah. uh, injury in the past. It's kept him out for you know extended times. Um, I think... I came away from the building, you know, obviously they didn't answer any questions. They didn't give any status updates on him at all. Did he talk I at came all? Away from, no, he uh, did not talk to the media, but then I guess a few reporters were able to sort of catch him in the tunnel. And, uh, you know, he said something along the lines of, you know, he he, he said he'd be all right or, or something mm-hmm. along those lines, something generic. You know, he didn't commit one way or the other. I think if I was Houston, I would save him for game seven and I would Ooh. try to do... I would try to do a Willis Reed type situation because Golden State is going to be really angry coming out in game six. They're going to be back at home, and I can completely see the situation where I think the line's already set at like 10 or 11 points. Um, I could see that being a blowout given the quick turnaround for Golden State. 
I think if I'm Houston, I just try to give Chris Paul the maximum whatever three days rest he can get. Yeah. And uh, hope that he can give you that e- emotional uh, lift because having any sort of a hamstring injury in this series is death. Because you're moving around so much, you're switching so much, you're covering so much ground, and you're doing it all against such high-level players. There's nowhere to hide him, really. And I think you know the potential for re-aggravation if you bring him out there in Game 6 and you don't have him for Game 7, You know, to me, it wouldn't be worth it. Yeah, well, uh, we will have to wait and see. I'm not a doctor, and I have no idea what Chris Paul's hamstring is doing right now. I, I will say I had the same reaction watching from home. It's like... In that moment, if he weren't seriously injured, there's no way he doesn't find a way to just tough it out and finish the game. Exactly. And so it's not great. It definitely would concern me if I were a Houston fan. The last thing on this series, though, what do you think? Like, I'm not going to, you don't, you're probably going to stay wedded to your Warriors. Well, you can't. You have Warriors in six. How do you think this ends? I think the Chris Paul injury, unfortunately, will slant this series and Golden State's going to win in seven. Um, I don't feel great making that selection. You know, after all, I'm now H-Town's adopted son. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I want to say this about Chris Paul. This is one thought I had, and it's a little bit dark, so, you know, forgive me. But oh boy. Uh, I was there when he hit the game winner uh, against the Spurs in the first round uh, a couple years ago. Yep. And it was that it was a fantastic moment. Again, he's sort of grinding through injuries and, and pain to hit that shot. And it was sort of like that finally moment. You know, he's done it. He's broken through. He's delivered in the clutch. And then, obviously, everyone remembers what happened in the next series. You know, they go down. And, totally. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of like this microcosm of Chris Paul's life. It's like anytime something happens in the NBA uh, good for him, you know, the opposite immediately happens. And I had that same sort of dark feeling here in this game where he's played two of the most impressive games in terms of the stage of his entire career, right? Games four and five. Well, look, and to ha- you were not have man. The- this is dark, I know. but I'll let you continue. I- I'm almost done. But just to have the hamstring injury flare up at that moment, yes. like I really hope that doesn't wind up being sort of this like microcosm moment of Chris Paul's career where like just as he's there to celebrate, uh, you know, he kind of gets struck down with a fluky injury that – you know, has unfortunately sort of, you know, marred some of his previous uh, postseason, uh, postseason runs. But yeah, uh, I, I'll put it this way. There's no way he's going to sit out both game six and seven. Like, as you mentioned, like he's a competitor, like he wanted to be out there for the final moments of game five. Like you're cautious in that situation, but you're not so cautious that he's just going to watch the rest of the series. You know, like he may not be able to move. He may only be able to play a few minutes or something like that in game seven, but he's going to be on the court at some point. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree with you. Chris Paul's a psychopath. He'll he'll make it out there somehow. I and I'm glad that you voiced that and your theory there, uh, because I certainly had the the same thought when I saw him go down, and I'm sure a lot of people did. Like years ago, I called him uh, basketball Sisyphus, and that trajectory has continued through several playoff runs since. And uh, look, even if that is how it ends with him. I will still, and if that's how we remember his career, I will still be there at the end saying, look, for people who were actually there watching Chris Paul, he was fucking awesome, like 98% of the time in the playoffs. So um, we'll see. Well, hey, on a, on a much lighter note, I know we have to move on here, but you know, Harden's 0 for 11 record-tying performance uh, on three-pointers. I don't know if you, you caught my tweet on whose record he tied. 
but it was John Starks <laughs> in the 1994 finals, really? Game 7. Never good company when people are bringing up John Starks during a playoff game. But this is what I'm saying. John Starks in 1994 went 0 for 11 in a Game 7 of the finals. So if you translate that to like, you know, 2018 pace and stats, that's basically like an 0 for 24 <laughs> game. Like the audacity of John Starks to hoist 11 three-pointers in a, you know, a season-ending loss is incredible. It's almost a testament where like you're impressed, you're not even disappointed, you know, like Baxter's Wheel of Cheese or whatever that line is. Uh, so James Harden, John Starks, elite company together in the NBA record books. Yes. James Harden owes a thank you to Chris Paul for game five, because he would be taking a lot more heat. And you're right that, uh, like hearing you describe over 20 John Starks, I'm really glad that didn't (laughs) happen in today's era. Okay. Because like that would have literally ruined John Starks' life with just a lifetime of memes. Um, yeah, that's when you go home and you just delete your Instagram exactly. account. You're just like, delete like Lamar- <laughs> you LaMarcus Aldridge it, and you're just like, no, I'm off social media forever now. I, don't, I can't handle this. Yeah, go live in the Unabomber cabin or something. Let's move on here. We got to talk Celtics-Cavs for a little, uh, just like 10 minutes. I know you got to write, and it's almost 2 a.m. here, but... Uh, two questions. Kinley says, has Brad Stevens come up with the answer to the LeBron question? LeBron himself? Is tiring him out the only way to stop him? And then Jeff says, I've never been a fan of LeBron James, but I of course acknowledge his place among the NBA greats. Having said this, as I'm sitting here watching Celtics Cavs, I started to ask myself this question. Could it be possible that he really doesn't want to win this series, but all the while is making it appear like he's doing his best to carry the team? And Ben, I love this Cavs season, man. It's just every every other week we go from LeBron is the greatest player of all time and better than Jordan to LeBron is leaving and it's obvious if you're paying attention and he hates his teammates and I'm not even knocking Jeff the second questioner because I've had those thoughts during Cavs losses like it was game five a feel out game for LeBron too I it's just it's so hard to get a read on what the hell is happening with this team but what was your reaction? Well, my first reaction was Sam did forget another one of the things you said about the Rockets because I think <laughs> at some point recently you said that the Eastern Conference Finals was like much more entertaining for the casual fan than the Western Conference Finals. Get out of here. You know I mean, what? Was so, okay. so completely foolish. I was falling asleep during game uh, <laughs> game five of the Eastern Conference Finals. I know you were too and don't even pretend like you weren't. That game five of the Eastern Conference Finals was by far the most boring playoff game of probably <laughs> the last two months. But I will say this, I was redeemed or I redeemed myself on the last podcast by doing my very best to jinx us into some good basketball games at the end of the podcast when I was like, well, I guess since the conference finals aren't good, we should start talking about the free agency summer and the, the no, chaos you started bringing up. You started bringing up hockey. <laughs> exactly. so that was what we, That's what we knew we were doing. I was pulling due. out all the stops, all right? And it worked. It worked out in, in Warriors-Rockets, at least. Okay, so back to LeBron here. Um, f- first of all, it was not a feel-out game. I thought the Celtics, it wasn't necessarily that they outlasted LeBron or outworked LeBron or made him tired or whatever else. 
I thought their three-point shooting kind of broke his back because he realized, like, the one thing LeBron can't do is guard five different shooters at once, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's always a way that, you know, if their defense breaks down and guys are hitting open shots, like, then you're taking the ball out of the net and you're like, here we go again. Can we even trade threes with these team with this team? Because, you know, Cleveland shooters just haven't been showing up on the road, right? So, you know, about halfway through the second quarter as Boston's three-point shooters are just raining down shots, you can ha- kind of see the slump shoulders stuff from LeBron, like, uh, here we go, like, yeah. you know. Here's another one where, like, I couldn't go out there to contest him because I'm guarding my man, but he hits the shot. What are we going to do? And I thought he got – not that he checked out. That's too strong. But I thought he got down in those moments. Like, you know, this team is just too good at home for him to be able to to take them down. They were hitting too much for him to have an answer. And um, he focused most of his postgame comments about Cleveland's lack of ability to score. But to me, it was just sort of like he felt outgunned. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was actually pretty funny watching him try to spin it that way. I don't know if he really believes that, but he he did. He was on the podium talking about how, you know, they the Cavs actually played good defense and it was the offense that was the problem. But, like, I, I mean, the Celtics were hitting from everywhere. And some of that isn't going to be sustainable, obviously. But, like, they, the Cavs... <laughs> We're not winning on either end of the floor that night. And I, I agree with you, though. I'm not really buying the, like, exhausted LeBron narrative. I think more than anything, I, I'm i buying the brilliant LeBron narrative. And I think he's just really good at managing energy. And, like, my take was even after the first quarter, when the Celtics exploded that way, I think he recognized that game five wasn't going to be the night. And then it continued all. I mean, like Marcus Smart was hitting from all over the floor too. Like when that happens, the Celtics are going to be much, much harder to beat. And I think LeBron is just smart enough that at this point in his career, he's going to sort of conserve energy for the, for six and seven at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, I know that's boring for us to agree, but I, I thought he just sort of managed the series you know, starting about halfway through that second quarter, he's just like, look, we don't have the guns. Let's, you know, come back game six, uh, you know, even it up. And then whatever happens in game seven happens. That seemed like his mentality to me. So do we have anything else to say about this series going forward? I think we we could just wait until game six or game seven. I don't, it's not a given that Cleveland's going to go out there and win game six. Just like, I was actually, I was going to ask you that. Uh, I mean, everyone is predicting Cavs win game six to force game seven. Is that a dangerous spot? Because like the you know Boston did make sort of an adjustment with Baines, and that's been a really you know solid uh, you know counter. I, I think in terms of what they're trying to do, are we rushing to a, uh, an assumption that maybe we shouldn't be because Jr. was you know shooting blanks, uh, Hill wasn't really doing much, yeah. Rodney Hood. I, I'm not even sure if he's still on the team. <laughs> Actually, did you know, did you see the Rodney Hood game in the last minutes? You know, it's like blowout time. So they put him in there and he comes in and just swishes two shots like back to back like as if he's like the best player in the NBA, like just money. You know what's bullshit with the, the whole Rodney Hood experience thus far in these playoffs is Cleveland doesn't play him in the blowouts that they actually win. And then they throw him out there when they're down 15 or 20 and just make him take it on the chin. It's really frustrating, right? Rodney Hood's redemption season, the Rodney Hood season next year when he's in Charlotte or somewhere, it's going to be great. And I will get the last laugh. Uh, but as far as... Wait, the, let me ask you this. Do the, could the Warriors use Rodney Hood right they now? They <laughs> absolutely could. All right. Rodney Hood is better than Quinn Cook or Nick Young or Kevon Looney. I don't know, man. Maybe that's the solution. 
Open floor globe, you heard it here first. The <laughs> long-awaited Rodney Hood game is coming game six of the Western Conference Finals. The long con from Rodney Hood to play himself down to that minimum level, and then he's going to sign with Golden State and become a champion next year. Uh, I've given up trying to guess what's happening with this Cavs team. I, I too, see everyone just like penciling in a Celtics-Cavs game seven and get a little suspicious it just feels a little too easy. And it does also feel like whenever the Cavs era ends for LeBron, which I think will probably be this summer, like it's probably going to end with a real clunker that is like incredibly depressing. And I think Cavs fans who have had to live through the ups and downs of this season uh, could probably... Or they have not been having fun. And so it would be appropriate if everyone was just waiting on that switch to be flipped game six and then and waiting for LeBron to come into the garden in game seven and just take over. Like it would be appropriate if it just all fell apart on Friday night. It, it's not the most likely outcome, but uh, all I know is I want to go to Boston for the finals and I believe in my Celtics to win one of the next two games. Yeah, your Celtics. Well, I mean, the LeBron exit games have been a real sight to behold. I mean, there was the whole Delonte West thing. And then in Miami, he like couldn't look at his teammates on the bench, you know, as the Spurs were sort of running them out of the building. So like, you know, we could be setting up for that. I think that's fair. In the interest of balance, though, let me just give you LeBron's elimination game statistics, Andrew. He's been in 21 uh, over the course of his career. He averages basically 34 points, 11 rebounds, and 7 assists Uh in elimination games. And if you look at his elimination games just since he came back to Cleveland the most recent time, it's 37 points, 12 rebounds, and 9 assists. So he's almost (laughs) averaging a a 37-point triple-double. So if he doesn't do something like on that level of Game 6, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb because every time he's been in this situation, especially here over the last four years, he's gone to a gear that basically no one else can get to. Yeah, I mean, I'm not predicting LeBron's going to go out there and tank the game. I'm just saying, I be keep your guard up, Cavs fans. Uh, and as far as the one thing I, I think that is worth mentioning, like Ty Lue, once every three or four games, just stops playing Kyle Korver, and he's been probably the second best Cav in this series. And I don't really know what 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 his thinking is it's he's sort of like east coast steve kerr uh but i assume that corver will see more minutes in game six and uh you know we'll see i i personally would love to watch celtics Cavs game seven on sunday night so yeah there was a lot of argumentation about okay why isn't corver playing minutes is it possible that ty Lu was just trying to limit his minute workload because Kyle Korver is really old and he played really, guess, really hard the previous game. This is shit that you can't do in game five of a playoff series, okay? If LeBron is managing his energy and if Korver is, if, if Ty Lu is playing for game seven in game five, like that's just a bad idea. And it seems like well, something what, what that's going to get is, punished by the basketball gods. What I'm saying is, is it possible that rather than being dumb, they're desperate? You know, perhaps like that's their their last solution is kind of that was sort of my thought, both with the way LeBron played game five and with the way they managed Corver's minutes, because like they absolutely need Corver. He's been right there with love as like their second best player of this postseason. Right. And 
you can't run them out there. Like these guys are not robots. You know, we've seen it actually in the Western Conference Finals too. Not only the mental fatigue I mentioned earlier, but the physical fatigue too of these guys, especially the Warriors players who've had their minutes managed so carefully all season long. They get into the fourth quarter and all of a sudden, you know, those the shots are are going way off. Um, and I think you know these guys are not robots. And I just wondered if maybe that was an alternate. Uh, solution rather than the whole like oh Brad Stevens changed Semi Ojale's minutes so therefore you know like that sounded so weird to me that I thought maybe there's a simpler solution yeah um well we will wait and see uh let's move on and hit some random mailbag questions to close this out here first we had a number of follow-ups to your nba finals idea i'll just read this one um okay mike were they positive or negative i I didn't get a chance (laughs) they were mostly i don't know it was a mixed bag but mike says hey guys love the pod but i had to switch it off today when you when you guys started to wax rhapsodic over about turning the nba finals into a neutral site all-star weekend type event You guys are coming at it from the perspective of people who have a giant corporation that is expensing your travel. For the average fan of teams actually competing in the finals, this is a terrible idea. This isn't a one-day event like the Super Bowl or a one-weekend event like the Final Four. For actual fans, instead of a few hundred dollars for a ticket, you are now adding potentially several thousand dollars in travel and hotel costs. And... I read that because there were like four or five people who wrote in with that same theme. And listen, longtime listeners of Open Floor know that Ben Golliver is a coastal elitist. And I apologize for briefly Look, falling under his spell. I apologize to all down. the real fans out there. It won't happen again. It's a terrible See, idea. This, this drives me crazy, Andrew, because it's the same thing you did with the Kevin Durant argument. You just take these very simplistic populist takes <laughs> you appeal to people's base you know, needs and you just force feed them this ignorance look first of all i have uh absolute empathy for the fans you know the the poor diehard you know golden state fans who can't scrap together the private helicopter charters to make it to <laughs> a neutral site game no i'm kidding look my point was this it's not just about the fans in the building andrew it's about the global fan base how do we we grow the game how do we make the finals a showcase where you know hundreds of millions of people are involved in watching it and appreciating this thing rather than you know just the twenty thousand people in the building and you no know, his the, the point though is well taken and i yeah. will say uh one of the nba's head pr people just started cackling at me when he saw me after he read this article and he's like i bet your email is just a wasteland (laughs) (laughs) from home team fans he's like basically like thanking me for being the dumbest person on the internet for the day uh because it kind of kept the uh you know kept the hate off the league or whatever who knows but um there are complications to it, but I think there are benefits as well. And look, you wouldn't have to go for the whole two weeks if you're a fan. Like, for example, one thing I I kind of compare it to, you know, my family actually went to the World Cup in Germany. I was going to bring up like, the World Cup. Yeah, that's the best like, like parallel. Ten, like 10 years ago. And, and if we didn't know where the games were going to be held, you know, months in advance, and if we couldn't plan our travel and do all the other things— and it was just sort of going to be held in some random stadium, there's no way we ever would have gone, right? So I understand that, you know, the provincialists out there are going to say, oh, yeah, we had to protect the home team fans. And I absolutely think that season ticket holders should get first crack at finals tickets. Yep. You know, once the NBA takes my advice and moves it to a neutral site. 
But let's think about all the fans who, you know, don't have the ability last minute to travel to these events. Uh, I just think, uh, you know, w- these people who are angry about it are seeing short. They're not seeing long. Yeah, and for the record, I was just playing around with your. I mean, you are a coastal elitist out there on your Andrew, high horse. Stop it. But um, I think that there are there are exponentially more people watching at home than in the stadium. So I don't think that any group of thirty thousand fans should decide what the NBA does in that department. And and most football fans don't go to the Super Bowl, but that doesn't make it any less enjoyable to watch your favorite Thank team you. in the Super Bowl. So great point. We don't great need point. to get too worked up over the common fans, ninety five percent of whom can't afford to go to, like you said, a Warriors game or like the Caps are in the Stanley Cup finals and tickets are a thousand dollars for like anything decent so yeah the, the hope team fans are just sad because they can't scalp their tickets okay that we know <laughs> and that's, that's what a happens. fair it- complaint okay <laughs> there's no question it's a valid concern but uh i do i still really like the idea and if the nba is laughing it off i wish they wouldn't because i think it could be could be really cool the one point that um what's his name mike the one point that mike brought up that is completely fair is that we are coming at it from the perspective of people who will be able to expense our travel and we're completely biased. And I would love to spend two weeks in London watching Warriors Cavs instead of going to like Cleveland or, or San Francisco. I thought you said you love the game as much as I do. I do not put my own personal interests above anything. (laughs) The most important thing is the gospel of basketball always right and what's the what's the best way to make the finals as incredible as possible it's by following our advice stick with the script totally. here don't uh <laughs> don't don't let anyone accuse us of bias or wanting free international travel okay it's not that simple all right well next question here ben says andrew sharp you have lost your goddamn mind if brad stevens could turn cat into horford with time dot 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 that's something i said on the last podcast apparently are you kidding me? He says, "Cat with a torn ACL is better than average Al on his best day." Uh, oh dear! Look, it's a really sensitive time for Wolves fans, so I'm not going to be too mean about this. I just will say, I wasn't saying that Horford is better than Cat. I'm just saying that a Boston will need a replacement for Horford in the next few years, and b a lot of Horford's value is on defense. And it'd be really interesting to see how Cat responded in that area, especially if Horford is there to mentor him because those two have been close since they were on the Dominican national team together when Cat was 16 years old, which I wrote about a couple years ago. So that was really where that was coming from. And again, I felt disgusting for taking the Celtics fandom a little bit too far, but uh, you know, they're not trading Cat, so that's, that's all that matters. Well, I actually saw Cat play for the Dominican Republic when when they scrimmaged against a U.S. team in Las Vegas, and Cat was like 11 years old. I mean, it was like comical how young he was compared to like the high quality level of American players on the court at the same time. And everybody after that game came out singing his praises. It was really uh, pretty remarkable. I don't even think he had like a big stat night or anything, but all the American guys who were in that scrimmage, uh, and they were some like pretty major A-listers. I forget who. I want to say maybe Duran and Harden were on that team. They were all Yeah, I remember that year. And and yeah, Horford was playing for Dominican Republic and they have stayed pretty close to this day and still talk pretty regularly. Well, then it's a done deal. I mean, he's going to Boston. So. <laughs> there you go. That's <laughs> no, all you need no, to know. I, I, 
Look, I'm Ben. I'm a little disappointed in you, though. Uh, I mean, come on, man. Like us, Bens have to stick together right now. No torn ACL or torn ACL. Carl Anthony Towns is not a better all-around basketball player than Al Horford. Uh, it's just not the case. And uh, this playoffs have been Al Horford's sort of, uh, you know, greatest moment I think as an NBA player. And doesn't mean he's a top five guy in the league by any stretch, but he's been phenomenal. And that's not a knock on Cat. You know, Cat can still be a very, very good player, a top, you know, 25 type guy. Uh, but he's got some holes in his game that just would not uh, allow him to play in the conference finals right now, for example, uh, like Horford's been playing. Yeah. So, Andrew, don't back down. You don't. Uh, you have not lost your mind, like Ben suggested. You're doing just fine. Great. Um, all right. Well, let's we, let's finish it off. Actually, that that's a good segue because there are a lot of people who claim that Horford should have made an All NBA team, which I think he should have. He should have been there over Paul George. Uh, but we've got two questions here. First from Bradley, who says, it bothers me that NBA awards can be left to the subjective whims of media analysts, regardless of whether they get the vote right. So here's my question. With so many objective ways to measure player performance, how would you assign awards if you were in charge? Hashtag Golliver for commissioner. Please wow. do not start vesting him with that kind of authority. He will take it way too far, and every week there will be a new Gulliver hoop idea. We don't need to go down that road. But John says, can you tell me how in the effing blue hell Victor Oladipo did not get any first-team All-NBA votes? We can hit that in a second. What do you think of the voting in general? Well, I think I've made some of my tweaks to the system clearer. Uh, to me, I think the media should be the ones who vote. You can't trust the player vote. You definitely can't trust the fan vote. Uh, I don't think the coach's vote or the executive vote would actually give you anything better than what the media does. But I think what the NBA needs to really do here, especially for the all-NBA voting, modernize the ballot. You've got to scrap the positional designations because it just gets too complicated. And when you're making these sorts of calls like Paul George versus Horford versus Towns, and like intelligent, you know, very dedicated voters are going to go and look up like how many, what percentages of these guys play at various positions. Is it fair if I vote them in for like the forward or the center or whatever? It's too complicated. Like the all NBA first team should just be the five best guys in the season that year. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think if you did it that way, the final results would have a, a lot fewer sort of head scratching moments. For example, like DeAndre Jordan was a first team all NBA center. Was he ever close to the top five player in the NBA? No. This year, you look at, you know, Damian Lillard, he makes the first team all NBA. Would you ever consider Damian Lillard a top five player or anywhere near that conversation? Uh, I don't think so. So uh, for me, the trickiest thing with the all NBA voting is the health component. And I think if you removed the posi uh, positional designations, you would find yourself with five deserving candidates. Like, for example, this year, I think Giannis would have been that fifth guy, right? Like you would have Harden, LeBron, AD, oh KD. Oh, my God, that'd be awesome. And if, you, and if you can throw Giannis on the first team, everyone's happy. There's no complaint. There's no debate. You know, Damian Lillard gets bumped down to, say, the second team. Everybody's fine, right? And I just think that uh, it bothers me that it's inconsistent, too, because you've got on the all-NBA ballot, you know, we vote, and it has to be two guards, two forwards, and a center. But on the all-star ballot, when we vote— it's two guards and three front court players. I think it should go completely positionless for both. 
Uh, and it should essentially just be, you know, in the all-star game, it should be a popularity contest, just the top five guys. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think for, uh, you know, the, the five most popular guys for the fan vote. But then for the All-NBA, it should just be the five best all-around players, the guys who had the best all-around seasons. And that would be pretty much the only change that I would make. Well, that's great. I don't really care about this. And I'm, you really carried us there for a couple minutes. Uh, I agree with everything that you said. I think that... <laughs> By the way, everyone, he has a vote. So <laughs> <laughs> He can't make it through You're... a 30-second conversation about the awards, but he is determining who gets Supermax. No, no, no. Listen, okay, we've talked about this several times over the years, and I think that the, the positionless thing is really important if this is going to decide Supermax contracts. I'd be curious as to whether you'd have to involve the Players Association at all if you wanted to change it, since it is like this has all kind of been collectively bargained. Um, but if this is going to decide contracts, for instance, that's why you can't have coaches and executives voting on it because there's a conflict of interest there and that's tough. Um, and I, I think you're right though. We're very close to the ideal system because the media like Twitter kind of polices the media and everyone is very responsible with the way they go about this, even me. And so I think that, um, you know, this is the best, this is the best voting system that you're going to have. Uh, the one thing that I do kind of get frustrated with every single year, like John's question, can you tell me how in the fucking blue hell Oladipo did not get first team all NBA? <laughs> I would have been a lot more tempted to vote for him first team All NBA after these playoffs. Um, although Fair point. maybe not first team, but I think that like you know Horford a, a thousand percent makes All NBA after these playoffs, and that is something that I mean this has traditionally been a regular season thing, but I'm not really sure why it needs to be. And if we're looking for the most accurate version of the best 15 players in basketball, which again, we should be since these decide contracts, then do it after the playoffs. Yeah. Well, I think the reason why Oladipo didn't get uh, a first team all NBA vote is because there's only two guard spots, right? So that limits your pool right. and they didn't win a ton and voters tend to value winning a lot, right? So even though they overachieve, that usually doesn't carry you all the way onto a first team uh, he's also a new name and a new face, and I think it, it's tricky to kind of break through. I mean, usually the voter pool says, okay, if you make a third team or a second team, eventually you can kind of work your way up, right? And so I think that's the boring answer to sort of his question. Well, but yeah, I, but I, that's I a you're real raising thing. a more like the yeah. I remember when I was voting, I I think I called you or texted you talking about struggling with Oladipo versus DeRozan because I didn't totally trust how real Oladipo's success this year was and then watching him in the first round of that playoff series like I, I was completely convinced and uh and I ultimately voted for Oladipo over DeRozan but it just uh it, it, like the, the the larger point is that I don't really see why it has to be this way yeah so two thoughts uh w one goofy and then you know w one not as goofy 
I went around at the game today kind of pretending to confess to people that I had voted for Ariza for all NBA just to see their reactions. <laughs> I don't know if you saw how he got like, like randomly got like one vote at the bottom and everyone was freaking out about it on Twitter. And I just was like telling that to random media members and people looked at me like I was crazy, which that's a, a pretty good inside joke. So you should do that anytime. Like anyone who doesn't listen to this podcast, you know, Andrew, like if you go to the finals, Tell everyone, like, Can man, I I'm really not. <laughs> yeah. That's a good inside joke if you're hanging out with, like, the dorkiest people in the world. No one, no normal person will think it's funny that you maybe gave Tre- Trevor Ariza <laughs> a third place All NBA well, vote. Well, Andrew, look, I'm a coastal elite, okay? <laughs> I don't know anyone who watches hockey, and I don't know any non dorks, all right? So I thought it was pretty funny. Great. But uh, related to that, I think that there's way too much hand-wringing about the random all-NBA votes like at the very bottom, right? Like I, I think agree. that is the part where the, the conversations got a little polluted and like don't freak out because one guy randomly voted for Dwight Howard, okay? It doesn't matter. If he made the team, that would be a problem. If he doesn't make the team, don't worry about it. But my final takeaway from what you were saying about voting for Oladipo or, or Horford, uh, I think there should be all playoff teams. And if I was commissioner for a day like this great hashtag, which I believe was trending on for the... <laughs> <laughs> four continents uh, over the weekend uh i think we should have all playoff teams and i don't know if you need to do a first team and a second team that would be but fun. i think it would be a cool it would be a cool way to just say like hey who are the top five guys um from the postseason so like who would you have on your all playoff team right now i think i would have lebron katie horford uh probably harden but i mean these are like debates that would get pretty good pretty quick right because you'd obviously have to weigh certain guys like davis he goes out in the second round so like can you can you keep him in or do you give his spot to somebody else i think i mean the nba has more than enough awards but if they instituted an all playoff team award i would not be mad at all yeah i we should talk about that more next week actually because that's an interesting question um I would, I, yeah, it's fun to argue about basketball. So there's no, there's no shame in just adding more shit for us to argue about. Um, but look, it's late. You have to go write a column. We should get going here. I, I have two more things to say. First is an email from Andrew who says, in the last podcast, you guys reference people that listen to basketball podcasts, but never actually watch a game. I am one of those people. I honestly greatly prefer hockey over basketball. I have yet to watch a single game all year, including the including the playoffs, but I listen to your podcast religiously. So first of all, thank you, Andrew. And second of all, Ben, I'm telling you, man, these people are out there. Um, oh, it, ex- it explains a lot. I mean, I think that people always mention how we, you and I contrast, you know, pretty carefully. And I think I'm here to talk basketball with the listeners who watch basketball and you're here to talk basketball (laughs) (laughs) with the listeners that don't watch basketball works perfect perfect and then the last thing is joey says sharp congrats man celtics and caps both look set to make the finals you must be psyched and you know what man i am psyched it was great i doubt you saw any of the caps game but it's awesome they are headed to the stanley cup and God, I, I'm not going to jinx it with any sort of excitement. But And look, the Celtics look like they might be winning too. We might be reunited in Boston this time in a week. So, now, are, you, are you nervous that the Caps are playing a team that's undefeated in the Stanley Cup Finals? You know what? 
I just found out that Las Vegas had a hockey team last <laughs> week, so I don't. I wouldn't read too much into any sort of hockey opinions I have. But God, I love Alex Ovechkin, and he is the Chris Paul of hockey. And everyone should be rooting for both Ovi and Chris Paul the next couple of days. Well, Hedgehog, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna root for the Capitals here. Great. Uh, it would be a lot more fun to take Vegas aside and sort of laugh at your misery when they, you know, inevitably. Uh, you know, knock off the Capitals. But I'm going to stand with you because I've taken a few cheap shots at you tonight, given that it's the middle of the night. And go Capitals. Uh, you know, we're both long-suffering Caps fans. And <laughs> it, it, it's going to be great to see them finally pull through. You know what's sad is after my year as a Wizards fan, I'm not even going to identify as a Caps fan because I don't want to put my stink on whatever is happening with that team. <laughs> so I'm just going to say... I wish the best for my friends who actually care about the Capitals. And uh, we'll keep it moving. I'm excited for this weekend, man. And uh, I guess we will probably talk next Monday night, potentially after a Warriors-Cavs Game 7. Warriors-Rockets Game 7. No question. Andrew, our emailers need to keep them coming. We've been getting so many emails. Like I mentioned earlier, I can't even keep up. But go ahead and send them to openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com you can tell from the emails andrew picked this episode that we've got nothing but heat and and keep that coming andrew the open floor globe needs to go to apple Podcasts or wherever else they're downloading uh, their podcast and they need to rate and review us hit us with that five stars because we really really appreciate it if you go to the apple podcast app just search open floor find our page scroll down it says rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy we are your podcast postmates or your uber or whatever else you want to call us it's so easy to rate these days guys help us out you know we stayed up late to to give you a fresh, <laughs> all right that's quick enough. breakdown here you don't have to and, you don't have to guilt trip listeners all right we can and if you're still listening and, and hoping i'm going to throw in one more barb at andrew or he's going to come oh. back at me you have enough time to go rate and review us, don't you think, Andrew? <laughs> hey, until next week, I'll talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy. Another great edition of Open Floor is in the books. Did you know Locked On has a daily podcast for all 30 NBA teams? If you're a Lakers fan, search Locked On Lakers. A Celtics fan, search Locked On Celtics. Warriors fans, search Locked On Warriors. Yes, all 30 NBA teams have a daily bite-sized podcast on the Locked On Podcast Network. Search on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts for Locked On, your favorite team. Or tell your smart speaker to play podcasts, Locked On, your favorite team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.